I'm turning now to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1 and verse 12. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 12. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. And our subject is the unique call of Christ. And we proceed to the second study into this Gospel of Mark. Actually, we will not deal with the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, which Mark, you noticed, mentions only in passing. He honours the temptation. He mentions it. But remember, the Gospel of Mark is, in a, a sense, an evangelistic tract. It is an abridged Gospel, you may say. It is intended for the purpose of proclaiming Christ and winning souls. And some things are omitted that are recorded in the other Gospels, and some, some things treated in very truncated fashion. The Gospel of Mark dwells mainly on the acts of Christ, and of course also his teaching, but predominantly his acts. It is intended to impress upon unconverted people in the time of Mark that Christ was divine, the Son of God who came to suffer and die for sinners to purchase salvation for all those who would be saved. Well, I won't introduce the Gospel of Mark, but proceed down through these passages. The temptation of Christ, of course, is of vital importance. And so here it is recorded kind of historically, but we pass directly to verse 14. Now, after that John was put in prison... Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But with what I'd like to deal with this morning, the call of the disciples, we're going to have to turn in a moment to the gospel of John. Because down here in verse 14, Mark proceeds immediately to Christ's ministry in Galilee. And there's quite a lot has gone before this, which we read about in the opening chapters of John's Gospel. So let's go over to the Gospel of John, just briefly, and chapter 1, for perspective, to put things in their correct place, as it were. Now, Christ had been, we emphasised this last study, announced by John the Baptist. We're going to be looking at uh, the Gospel of John, John the Apostle, quite a distinct person, of course. But John the Baptist was much more important than is often appreciated. He preached and he proclaimed the coming of Messiah to people who streamed to hear him from all of Judah and Galilee. Christ was announced beforehand, and he should have been expected. John the Baptist had spoken of the coming Messiah and his kingdom, 
And he was, name was a household name. Everybody knew him and his message. This strange and wild prophet preaching mainly in the wilderness. And they heard him. So Christ was well and truly announced when his own ministry began. But I'd like to track that ministry in the Gospel of John. And first of all, by looking at uh, John uh, uh, and chapter 1, and here down in uh, verse 19. This is the record of John, John the Baptist that is, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? John the Baptist had been preaching. He'd got the attention of the whole land, as it were. And the clergy in Jerusalem were intensely jealous and concerned. Though there were Sadducees and Pharisees, had gone out to listen to John and even succumbed to his baptism. They were not sincere. And John had denounced them, calling them a cunning men, a generation of vipers. And they were. He'd exposed their hypocrisy and their sin. And so in Jerusalem, we can see that evidently the Sanhedrin met together and they appointed a formal deputation to interrogate John. And so here in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 19, Who art thou? It's a hostile interrogation. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Who then? And we could read through that, but that's not our purpose. Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as prophesied, Make straight, prepare the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah. And they that were sent were of the Pharisees. Why do you baptize them? They asked him. And he told them about Christ. Verse 27. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me. And then uh, we come down to verse 29. This is just preliminary. We'll look at some verses by way of introduction to the passage in Mark. Verse 29 of John 1. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And Andrew and probably John, that is the apostle-to-be John, who were disciples of John the Baptist, from that moment followed Christ, the Lamb of God, the promised Messiah. And we read of how they went to speak with him. And then uh, James, Andrew brought Peter the next day and so on. And uh, we read down through John, the initial calling of the disciples. So... Peter and John and Andrew were already called by Christ because in a moment we'll be going back to Mark chapter 1 verse 14. He'd already met them. John the Baptist had directed those disciples to him. They had attached themselves to Christ. He'd called them for the first time and yet they weren't at this stage 
fully committed to him, they went back to their fishing. They listened to him when they could, when they were not fishing, and followed him, and were keenly interested, and were completely taken up by him, but they weren't wholly given to him, and they went back to their occupations. And you read of the calling of Peter down in John chapter 1 and verse 42, and uh, verses 41 and 42. And we could go on to chapter 2 of John's Gospel. And here, in the very first verse, the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And there's that great miracle of the changing of the water into wine. And disciples were there, at least the initially called disciples. And they saw his power, his miraculous power, and they marveled at him. And they were present when he did a very remarkable thing. Verse 12 of John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum. That was to be the base of Christ for some time. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, all the few that there were at this stage. And they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there you read about his driving out the people who sold sheep and oxen in the temple and the money changers. This was the first time he did this. He did it right at the beginning of his ministry and he did it for a second time at the very end of his ministry. But this is the first occasion and he demonstrated his mighty power and there were all those hardened clergy making money, selling sacrificial animals and running a money exchange so that the people had to change their ordinary currency for temple currency at exorbitant rates. They were crooked, they were hypocrites, they were on the make. They were not going to be ordered out of the temple. They were not going to be told what to do by this man from Nazareth. But he only had to exude with his words just a shaft of invisible power. And they all haplessly, helplessly left the temple and slunk away. A demonstration of the power of Christ. The whip with cords, that was a token thing. A token of discipline and power. But he could command them and the disciples saw this. How amazed they were. Surely, as John the Baptist had taught them, he is the Son of God. He has divine power. And you read about all these things. And then in chapter 3, you read about his encounter with Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. I won't stay with this, but look at verse 1 of John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Now listen carefully, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. In the short time, 
Christ had been in Jerusalem, he had already performed innumerable, compassionate, wonderful, healing miracles. And even this leader of men among the Pharisees, this highly placed representative from the Sanhedrin Council of the Jews, wanted some kind of rapport with him, some kind of agreement or deal. Perhaps he thought we could use the man with the power of God. He didn't yet recognize him as divine. He would soon, but he thought he had the power of God, and that's what we need. Miracles today, he thought, if we could get him on our side so that we continue to rule, and he provides these wonderful signs, well, then everybody will pay all the more attention to us. Whatever was in his mind. But you see there the evidence of the miracles. And Christ gives him that wonderful reply. You cannot even see the kingdom of God without being born again from above. And then the most famous verse in the Bible down in chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. These are wonderful verses. And then we must in due course, go back to. But just looking while we're in John 3 at verse 31. This is John the Baptist, and uh, he's saying, verse 31, he that cometh from above is above all. He's speaking of Christ. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. There's no question that in John's preaching and testimony, Christ was the Son of God from heaven who had descended down and would be the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Well, dear friends, enough of uh, the Gospel of John except to mention that in chapter 4, the Lord now leaves Jerusalem and we're told it's because of the intense jealousy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we may throw in the chief priests. John the Baptist was threatening enough. But now Christ is preaching. And even more hear him. And he does these great miracles which John the Baptist didn't do. And so they would undoubtedly move against Christ. Was Christ the Lord afraid of them? No. But his hour was not yet come. He was working to a plan. It would be some little while yet before he was ready to submit willingly to arrest and ultimately execution, crucifixion on the cross. They would want to kill him and do away with him. He was not ready yet for that. He had his work on earth to do, his life of perfect righteousness to live under great provocation, people to save, compassionate miracles to work, to prove and demonstrate his divinity. 
And so, verse 3 of John chapter 4, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee to begin that great Galilean ministry. On the way, he has to pass through Samaria. That's what John 4 is about, his encounter with the woman of Samaria. But going back to the Gospel of Mark, we pick up the trail in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. I hope you don't mind that detour to give perspective. But after all the events in the beginning of the Gospel of John, Mark 14, John is put in prison by Herod. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The set time has come. Paul puts it this way, and when the fullness of the times had come, it was time for the dispensation of the law to end. It was time for the dispensation of the Jews and God's special dealings with them to be brought to an end. It was time for the coming of Messiah, the work of Christ, his atoning death, the greatest event in all history alongside the incarnation of Christ. It was time for his death and resurrection and then the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the New Testament church, when Jews and Gentiles saved would be one in Christ Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The long season of waiting, the long season of prophecies and promises, the long season of preparation of the Old Testament scriptures, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom. What does kingdom mean? First and foremost, it means rule. The rule of God. The kingdom in which God rules. There's going to be a new church with, as far as possible, a regenerate membership. People who've come to Christ. No longer saved and unsaved mixed together, as in the Jewish dispensation. But the kingdom, the rule of God, is at hand, the kingdom of Christ. Repent ye, change you. Or as some would have it translated, as I think they're right, be converted, be changed. Leave by the power and blessing of God the old life behind and let him give you a new life. Be changed and believe the gospel. The two go hand in hand. Repentance and belief are twin sisters. You believe in Christ. You trust in his suffering and death on your behalf. 
to cancel the power and the penalty of sin and take away your condemnation. You yield your life to him. Change, the call for change. Lord, change me. Give me a new life. And the repentance of sin go hand in hand. This is perfect. It would be the entire ministry of Christ. Mark puts it right at the beginning. And that's where it belongs. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, look at verse 16. Because this is really the point of our thinking. Now, as Christ walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Yes, but they'd been called by Christ already. John and Andrew, at the direction of John the Baptist, had gone after Christ. They'd spent the best part of a day listening to him privately, speaking with him. They'd become his followers. But now they're called again, a second time in Mark's Gospel. This time in an entirely different location, in different circumstances. They're casting a net into the sea. Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. There's a lot in that term, make you. Typically, the driving instructor says to his new pupil, listen carefully, and I will make you a safe driver. In other words, he will train you to be a safe driver. That's what so many of them like to say. And they mean it. That's the meaning here. I will make you, I will train you to become fishers of men. And what a training they needed. They needed, of course, to be converted. But they needed also to be trained. Why look at them. Dear Peter, what a grand apostle he became. But he wasn't at all suitable at first. He would never have passed an interview for the job. He was impulsive. He got so many things wrong. He needed so much forming and shaping. And so do we all. When we're called by Christ... There is conversion. That's his work entirely to illuminate us, to give us understanding, to give us a new heart and a new nature and love for him, to pour his love into our hearts, to make us willing to believe, willing to serve him and to sacrifice to him. What a change is conversion. And it's dramatic. It's a crisis experience but then there's the training the training to honour him and live for him increasingly with greater commitment I will make you to become fishers 
A fisherman in those days was a wonderful example of a disciple. He had to be disciplined. He had to get up in the early hours before light at times, when it was the best time to fish. He was completely committed to his task and he had to keep his timetables. There was all manner of preparation to be done, to clean and to prepare and to mend the nets. It was arduous work. It required discipline and application and commitment. And if you were tired out and exhausted by it, you might say to yourself, I've got to do this all my life. Yes, that was his occupation. The day he stopped, he would no longer prosper, possibly no longer eat. I will make you fishers. The fisherman goes to where the fish are. He's after them all the time. The Christian is being made a fisher of men, but how different he is. He or she is now converted. I know the Lord. The matter is settled. Isn't it wonderful? And soon I no longer think about the fish and the others and the lost. And I look after my job and my family and my friends and my recreation and leisure and daily employment. But I'm a fisher of men. A fisher's got his mind on the fish every day, all the time. And that's what Christ is making of us. Are we forgetting our calling? Fishers of men. It's a good idea to put a notice up somewhere at home or in the back of the Bible. You're a fisher. Never forget it to family, colleagues. God has set me in this place as a fisherman. I don't like this job, we might say. Our circumstances have moved me into. I don't like this location. I don't like my colleagues. I don't like the rigors. But God has placed me here, not so that I like it, but because they're a fish. That's my calling. That's how we should think, for his glory and for his name. And he will strengthen us. There's a lot in every word in the inspired scriptures. I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway, immediately, why was that? They forsook their nets and followed him. Actually, they didn't. They forsook their nets then, but at the end of the day, they went back to them yet again. They were committed. Why did they respond to Christ so quickly, straightway? Did Christ possess great personal magnetism? Maybe. But they straightway followed him because spiritually, don't forget the spirit was with Christ too, spiritually 
he illuminated them. They saw something of who he was and his divinity and his greatness. It wasn't his personal magnetism, but I dare not take that away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It was their spiritual enlightenment. And that happens to us. One moment we're scornful of him, indifferent to him, preoccupied with ourselves and our ambitions and our possessions and our lives, subject to all the peer pressure in the world around us. But suddenly, as we hear God's word or the preaching or the witness of a friend or read the Bible, suddenly it may be there is illumination by the Spirit of God and suddenly we know he's the Lord and he came and suffered and died and we're condemned and we're sinners, we're convicted and we need him and his forgiving love and we're drawn to him. That's why you read the word straightway. They couldn't help themselves. They were illuminated and touched. And that's what we pray will happen in the lives of countless people. When we gather for our evangelistic service, our gospel service, that the Spirit will touch hearers. It's not the preacher. He's got to do his best. He's got to be clear. He's got to pray for help. But it's the Spirit who enlightens. Straightway they forsook him, shook their nets and followed him. But evidently they still had some doubts. Or if not that, it still hadn't occurred to them that this was a call for their whole lives. Because they went back. And I'm going to take you just briefly as we close, and we'll do a little less of this in future studies. I'm going to take you to Luke 5, and we must come to conclusion. What a wonderful passage this is. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon Christ to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them, and were washing their nets. This is not the same occasion as the call of the disciples, the first disciples in Mark chapter 1. This is a markedly different occasion. Just about everything is different. In the record of Mark and of Matthew, Jesus was walking by the side of the lake. In this record, He's standing. In the record in Mark, Jesus addressed them all. But here, he addresses only Peter. The interaction is just with one. There, in the Gospel of Mark, they were casting their nets and mending them. Here, they're washing them. There, in Mark, they left the nets when Christ called them. But here, most significantly of all, they don't just leave their nets. 
they leave all. That's different. This is a different occasion. The first call is in the opening chapter of John. The second call is in chapter 1 of Mark, parallel passage in Matthew. The third call is here in Luke chapter 5. Verse 3, as he entered into one of the ships, you don't read this in Matthew and Mark, they're dealing with the second call, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the nets. And when he had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. The net broke. They beckoned the partners. Both the ships began to sink. And verse 8, the key verse, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished. And so was also James and John, partners with Simon. And Simon, Jesus said unto Simon, verse 10, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. That's wonderful. They were illuminated. They were drawn. They followed Christ. But now Peter really sees his unworthiness and sinfulness. And he repents and falls before the Lord. And the third time the call is made, follow me. They give up all. Conversion is of God. Sometimes fuller obedience lags behind. Will you get up early for the world? But you wouldn't get up early for the Lord. Would you make sacrifices? For the world, for your job, for your family, well, that may be right, but not for the Lord. They gave up all. That's the call of Christ. He doesn't call all to give up their occupations and professions, but he wants all our hearts and all our commitment. And we will get up early for him. We will say, take my heart ever, only, all for thee. That's the call of the disciples. That's the call of Christ. That's the word to us this morning.